The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The Glenn Beck Program. I believe all of us at some point have been told, sorry, bathrooms are for paying customers only. And you're like, I'm going to explode. You don't understand. I've got an issue with public restrooms. I hold it as long as I can. I really don't care. I'm going to explode. And you're going to have some mopping up to do that you just don't want around your customers. Let me use the bathroom. We've all been in that situation. The Glenn Beck Program. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. For another episode, our 104th episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're looking for a voice in the wilderness, a voice of an American patriot and a Muslim that believes that reform, that counter-ideology starts as an American Muslim responsibility, that we are the last best hope, like America has always been the last best hope of humanity, that American Muslims who believe in reform, who believe in counter-theocracy, are the future of the faith, are the future of national and global security, then you've come to the right place. Every week, you and I together have a little conversation about frontline issues, issues that are probably bellwethers of understanding who's on our side versus who are actually our antagonists when it comes to freedom, liberty, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And you know, listen, it's easy to pigeonhole folks. It's easy to exploit Muslims and uh, other identity groups, if you will, that uh, try to be made into identity groups. Uh, I've rejected that as an American Muslim. And I hope here you shed uh, those uh, concepts of political correctness and start to look at solutions, to look at understanding that within the House of Islam is a battle for liberty and a battle for freedom. And that's what reform this is about. If this is your first time, welcome. If you've listened before, thanks for coming back. This week, I want to talk to you about a number of things. We're going to start by looking at religious freedom activism. What are the roadblocks for American Muslims? And we'll also talk about uh, the Middle Eastern Studies Association. What is that? And uh, also the new home secretary for Britain, Sajid Javid, is a Muslim or at least identifies as a Muslim but says he doesn't practice, does that matter? Who is he? Is he a threat? We'll talk about that here on Reform This. So first, let's talk about the roadblocks keeping Muslims from becoming activists for religious freedom. There was a piece out of the Deseret News that highlighted uh, what appears to be a uh, a new uh, wonderful think tank uh, that's out uh, called the Religious Freedom Institutes, led by uh, Jennifer Bryson, uh, who has uh, uh, also been working with uh, some other well-known folks in the religious freedom community, and uh, interviewed at length in this report is Ismail Royer. If you don't know who Ismail Royer is, he is a former care activist who was ultimately convicted uh, in uh, the early 2000s of uh, on charges of aiding terrorism, served his time, and I won't get into his case because I don't think it's relevant to what I want to talk about today, uh, but bottom line is, is uh, he now has uh, uh, claimed 
that he is in a process of reform and rehabilitation and uh, hasn't been very public in his condemnations of care, hasn't been very uh, public in his condemnations of Islamists, uh, but seems to be working with some of the right people and heading in the right direction of religious freedom, of pro-Americanism. But uh, again, if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen that you would see that I've had my disagreements with him. Uh, He has supported uh, religious freedom issues to include the wearing of the niqab, uh, which is a face veil that I think prevents people from even having any identity. And uh, uh, we've had that conversation here before. Uh, He has uh, also uh, supported uh, other uh, Salafi, Salafi meaning orthodox, backward-thinking folks uh, that want to restore everything to the way it was at the time of the Prophet Muhammad and don't look at new inventions of ideas of political science, of cultural science and Islam. But again, the the narrative about uh, folks that have undergone a public rehabilitation that are former radicals. I work closely with uh, Tawfiq Hamid, a former Al-Qaeda radical out of Egypt. I've worked closely with uh, Majid Nawaz and his think tank. Uh, There's been a lot of, uh, I think, wonderful work that has come out of those who have rehabilitated, who have begun to give back to the society that they were trying to destroy originally, being the West, being lands of democracy and freedom. And uh, perhaps uh, Mr. Royer is headed in that same direction. But the sentiment of the piece in Deseret News is what I want to address head on, which is, let's ask the question, what are the roadblocks that keep Muslims from becoming activists for religious freedom? If you read the piece and the interview from Royer, he'll give you quotations that say, uh, that uh, basically uh, say that when you read the classical commentaries, you see the way... Islamic scholars talked about the things I'm talking about, like religious freedom. To extremists, their words sound so foreign, like they're from Christianity, but in reality, in reality, it's part of their own religion. And then he goes on to talk about how he says, ill-informed anti-Muslim attitudes can create a barrier for Muslims who want to participate in religious freedom advocacy. So the barrier to religious freedom advocacy is about people who are anti-Muslim and the barriers they create in making Muslims feel uncomfortable. I have to tell you, talk to families in Syria, talk to families in Saudi Arabia with their loved ones in prison and jailed. None of the heat that we get in America from folks that might be ignorant about Islam comes within 0.001% of the heat that regimes that are theocratic and dictatorial shove down the throat of Muslims who are reformists, who are modern, who are secular, who are liberal, who believe and think on their own against the tribe. This is the problem with folks who speak out that simply say that the problem is with the environment and the culture and the climate in America. No, that's not a roadblock. That actually, I believe, should be a motivation to do the real work so that we can be contrite and show that we need real real reform to happen. And he says then there's no need, and this is further revealing in some of the problems. So you take a well-intended, probably right-of-center institute, the Religious Freedom Institute, and yet none of this report, none of their interviews use the word Islamism, talk about the Islamic State concept, not just ISIS, the Islamic State concept. None of them talk about reform, modernization, But simply it seems like the narrative that they're pushing is that Islam is just misunderstood. If you really understood Islam, 
There's nothing to worry about. It's just all of these radicals misunderstand it. Now, obviously, I love my faith. And, and granted, internally, when I pray to God and I read my Quran, that Islam that I understand, I do believe, doesn't have any conflict with modernity, with human rights, with all these other concepts that are uh, constantly part of the radical narrative. But to then impose this report, to impose this idea upon Americans that they misunderstand Islam when 99% of most of the publishing houses as a result of petro-Islam coming out of Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and elsewhere, and Egypt are Islamist, Wahhabi, Salafi, Jihadi interpretations is complete denial. So it's not a misunderstanding. We might have reformed our faith by virtue of being blessed by living in a Judeo-Christian, liberalized, post-enlightenment society. But to say that Islam is misunderstood is a dream that if you really want to effectuate, you need to use terms like reform. Royer says, there's no need to resort to some sort of foreign document. Why should I try to convince Muslims that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the best thing to base your life on if I can show them the exact same lessons in their tradition? I, I, I guess I get that. But the point of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a list of principles. It's called universal. There's nothing Western about it. It's human. Human beings have constantly ended up determining and figuring out that the best societies are those that embrace individual rights and certain principles of inalienable rights of free speech, assembly, religion, faith, expression, and belief. So why is it that then the obstacle, it seems, and the peace goes on and the folks at the Religious Freedom Institute then articulate that it's all about language, that if you translate religious freedom into Arabic, it somehow translates as uh, uh, something that is just foreign to Muslims. So we need to find something in the Islamic tradition. This is all mental gymnastics. The bottom line is, is that there is nothing said, and this is what bothers me, is that to believe that somehow it's just an accident that all 56 Muslim-majority countries are basically tyrannies. Some of them are democracies. Turkey and Indonesia, etc., are, are, are weak democracies. I say weak because ultimately the non-modernized Islamists are wreaking havoc through corruption, through domination of culture, through bastardization of democracy in Turkey. Now that has become a cult of Erdogan and has become, which the AKP party is the Muslim Brotherhood equivalent, the Islamist theocrats that have been in domination for the last almost 15 to 20 years in Turkey. So this is not a coincidence. And yet we can't legitimately, I was on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom for four years, two terms, and it's a two-term limited term. And I constantly try to educate folks that if you're going to have a discussion about religious freedom and Muslim-majority countries, we should not shy away from the narrative of the principles of individual liberty against theocracy, borrowing from 
Locke from Madison, Calvinist traditions and other reformists that are not only Martin Luther's of Islam, but the need to reform society to where you extricate mosque and state. Now, you would, you know, one of the problems, and this is probably why folks that uh, may be right of center, conservatives, but yet ignore reformists like myself, like Ezra Nomani, like Rahil Raza, is because uh, they want to buy into the easier route, the lowest hanging fruit, which is to accept that possibly to give Muslims the room to have something different than Jeffersonian democracy. That as Shadi Hamid calls it, Islamic exceptionalism, that they can come up with some other alternative society that might be just as good. And I reject that. I reject that it's a bigotry of low expectations. And we can make the human argument that theocracy, Islamic State, a faith-based national identity is always inferior to a liberal democracy. I believe we can make that argument, and we should. And this is a very important conversation, I think, for the conservative community to have, is that what is the centrality in the work on religious freedom? of counter-theocracy. If you don't keep it central, I really don't want to waste my time with it. If you avoid it, you empower the theocrats, and that is the obstacle to religious reform and religious freedom. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation about what should be the central focus when you talk about religious freedom among Muslims. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. What's the answer to that? You don't use Google. But good luck with that because there's nobody that's even close to them. Why can't conservatives do good search engines? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I think it is a good question. It's worth looking into. Is there something in the conservative ideology that blocks you from being able to create... (laughs) A decent search engine. (laughs) I don't know. Pat Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Every week, you and I together... Ponder, sit down, think about what are the areas that we can start to push buttons for reform, for modernization that will actually begin to take away the legs of the stool on which radical Islam sets. The radical Islamists are supported by an ideology that appears to be benign, but is actually their conveyor belt to radicalization, and that is Islamism, political Islam, the supremacist doctrine. Whether it's democratic or not, you could elect Islamists into place, but just as Nazis were elected just as fascist movements can be elected when put into place theocracy is undemocratic and illiberal. And I'm talking about classical liberalism. So what are the real roadblocks? You know, you read some of the things coming out of the conservative movement and, you know, they say, well, we let's embrace Islamists that, and they don't say Islamists, they'll say, let's embrace Orthodox Muslims who believe in the sanctity of marriage, who believe in pro-life, who believe in 
values that we share in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And that's all well and good. I share many of those values. But you're doing it with your eyes closed. You're doing it with your eyes closed. This piece with interview of Ismail Royer and others avoided political Islam because somehow conservatives... Now, maybe the conservatives that embrace him wish for a time in which secularism in the West would die off and we'd get back to theocracy. I hope not. I don't believe that's real conservatism. Most of the conservatives I, I value and cherish their friendship in America are constitutionalists who, who, who believe that the best constitution ever written by man is the United States Constitution and its Bill of Rights and especially its Establishment Clause in the First Amendment that doesn't prevent public expression of faith, this battle and debate about the real separation of church and state in America, but really prevents simply the establishment of religion. So therefore, American government does not have a religious identity. Why can't Muslims have that same belief? Now, why, and you may ask the opposite questions. Why do Muslims need to have that same belief? And I would tell you, well, we, we should have that debate. But I would tell you that the, the anti-Islamists would win that debate every time. Every time. Because always in humanity, we do not want to be governed by the men in beards and robes who are misogynist, who are, who are draconian, who don't think forward but think backwards. So the UDHR, I mean, I talked about that last segment, and folks like Ishmael Royer are talking about the UDHR as being, well, we don't want to impose that, but yet he can find those same principles within the Islamic tradition. So why not use that as a guidepost? We have a Muslim reform movement declaration that lists principles that we worked on and developed and has yet to be dissected by any of the Islamists in a constructive way. Why? Because it is a firewall against their ideas and they don't even want to get near it. It talks about the equality of men and women. It talks about the inviolability of free speech. It talks about the need to protect all folks' access to government equally, not just for Muslims, not just for Sharia experts, not just for ulama and scholars. So this elitist approach to Islam that, well, you know, people just don't understand Islam and even the governments don't, even the Islamists don't, even the, the, the theocrats, all these people don't. It's just us sitting in America. We happen to understand Islam. And, and listen, I don't mean to be sarcastic, but... It's one thing to have a, a utopian understanding of Islam in our mind. But if we as conservatives, and I'm a conservative, if you really believe in religious freedom, then you have to back that up with activism within your own community. So to the leaders of other conservative think tanks based on the concept of religious freedom, you are performing with a bigotry of low expectations when it comes to confronting Muslim communities. And they say, well, we can't be too confrontational. We need to accept reforms. Look at MBS. He's had a hard time and he's moving things slowly. And if we're going to move things slowly, we can't offend their sensibilities of faith. We don't need to use Western concepts of uniform, universal declaration. Let's just slowly talk about the essentials of Islam. Listen, that is dissimulation. And it's also insulting. It's insulting. You know, 
they talk about, he says, there's a lot of confusion. Religious freedom is associated with an effort to remove religion from the public square. It's associated with being anti-religious. They said, yes, that's, that's not religious freedom. That's hyper-secularism. You can't take the American dynamic in 2018 and the debate we're having with the far-left organizations like the Citizens United for the Separation of Church and State who are anti-religious, uh, folks in France that are prohibiting the, the public wearing of crosses and yarmulkes and, and uh, uh, Muslim dress, hijab, and other things. You can't compare that debate which I still, as much as it may offend people's religious freedom, it's a debate over details. When they've already settled the big debate, which is how their government legal system, their national construct of identity will be identified in legal legalism. Is it based on common law? Is it based on reason? Or is it based on scriptural exegesis? Determined by certain single faith in which their national flag is based on one faith identity in which their wars and their military are based on a jihad. Unless you defeat that, there will be no religious freedom in that country. You can find shades of gray of religious freedom, but as long as the military and national identity is based in jihad and the Islamic State, in the peace here, they say the roadblock is just the militants and ISIS. And No, ISIS is a natural byproduct. It's a natural byproduct of states like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Iran, Egypt. Just like Hezbollah is a natural byproduct of Iran, militant, rogue, barbarian organizations are a natural byproduct of theocrats who push a narrative that their interpretation is the only one of Islam. The West went through a reform against that, which created ultimately the liberalization. And as Bassem Tibi said, the secularization of Christianity did not bring about its demise. It brought about its flourishing. So I would beg my fellow conservatives, don't just embrace former radicals who have yet to publicly condemn Islamism. Don't avoid using the terms Islamism. Don't try to massage what you believe in. If you believe in religious liberty as taught by Locke, as, as part of the foundations of American freedom, articulate that into a way that translates into Arabic. But don't change the ideas because you think somebody whispered in your ear what you think Arabs or Muslims or, 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 or Persians or Indians or Pakistanis or Indonesians want to hear about their Islam, which you want to bend over backwards to say you love. Yes, I believe my faith is compatible with freedom and liberty. My personal faith. Do I believe Islam as it's taught globally is compatible? I do not. The establishment of our religion. The establishment leaders, the clerics, the, the, the theocrats, the presidents, and the, the politicians that, that, that teach and dominate Islamic education and Islamic established thought and books and publications are Islamist to the T. And we will not be able to reform as long as we dance around their Islamism and their Salafi jihadism. And every component needs to slowly be whittled away if we're ever going to win this battle.
So I would ask you, if you truly believe in conservative thought and religious freedom, you have to show that every day. The allies that you work with need to have pedigrees that show that they've written against the Islamist organizations that they claim to have reformed against. I'm still looking for Ismail Royer's condemnation of the Council on American-Islamic Relations that basically he became radicalized under, and then he ended up in prison for those years. I haven't found it. Is he afraid of that constituency? Is he afraid of that leadership for which he ended up going to prison for because of, I think it was a paintball jihad. I can't remember the details of his case, but at the end of the day, Many former radicals have had public expressions of what they've left and how they've reformed and why they have. Read Tawfiq Hamid's book, read Majid Nawaz's book, Radical. There are folks that are legitimate reformers who have expressed a abandonment of their previous militancy. And even with them, we constantly need to make sure that this isn't done simply as an expression of something that others may assume want to be heard, but simply is a genuine representation of reform. And I truly believe with Tawfiq, Majid, and others in this space that have been public that it is genuine. I personally was blessed to have been raised by Muslim parents that believed in Western freedom and liberalism, and I have not had a conflict in my life between these things. And constantly have been able to find scholars and others that allowed me to maintain that Amer that primary Americanism in my interpretation. But I've never been deluded into thinking that it's a dominant version and everybody else just misunderstands it. Uh, I believe that there's a major debate to be had. I thought it could take generations and it didn't matter, but after 9-11, I realized that we couldn't wait any longer. So the obstacles to religious freedom among Muslims is not the hate of the right it's not the climate of the conversation the obstacles are the lack of contrition among muslims the lack of responsibility among muslims to take on our leadership the lack of energy and organization among muslims to start articulating counter islamism ideas pro-liberty ideas and how asleep we've been in devoting resources and bandwidth to do it full stop this is Udi Jass. We'll be right back on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You know, I, I am often criticized by the Islamists, by the identity movement folks among the Muslim community who believe that being Muslim is all about one idea, being Muslim is all about one common clique, tribe, that we must move and vote and talk in unison from the mosques, from the organizations, from the media pulpits that exist. And I'm criticized that I'm just, they call me an Uncle Tom, they say that I'm some part of some conspiracy theory, whatever it may be, but they say I never seem to have anything nice to say about Muslims in the public air. 
that somehow I find some odd way to explain that they're always Islamists. Well, yes, I've been critical of the mayor of uh, London. I've been critical of um, folks uh, like the uh, Michigan governor uh, candidate in the Democratic Party who's uh, uh, was very close to care, was a vice president of the Muslim Student Association, has never said anything publicly against Islamist movements, but yet somehow we're supposed to believe he's not an Islamist because he's pro-LGBTQ, he's pro-legalization um, you know, of marijuana, and he ticked off all the boxes for the Democratic Party. Bottom line is, is listen... He's an Islamist as far as I'm concerned because when a Muslim is a public activist today, claims to be about anti-radicalism and anti-militancy, is he doing anything about the core issues that he understands better than anybody, having been an activist in the MSA and other organizations through his youth before going into medicine? This is, I'm talking about El Sayed in Michigan. We'll talk about that. We'll start looking at his ideas and what he represents. But my point in this segment, there was a recent Home Secretary appointee. His name is Sajid Javid. He's the first black and minority ethnic Home Secretary for the United Kingdom ever. He's an up-and-comer in the Conservative Party. He has held multiple cabinet positions in the United Kingdom And listen, if there is a Thatcherite Muslim that's publicly known in the UK, it would be Mr. Javid. So I saw some tweets coming from the conspiracy mongers on the, this time not on the left, but on the right. Alex Jones tweets out that, put a fork in the UK, he says basically they've been taken over. (laughs) This lunatic is a prime example of not only bigotry and, and uh, you know, listen, he's a guy who's become a mouthpiece for Russian television and Russian media. And uh, what, what's hilarious to me is that as he pushed forth, pushes forth ideas out of Russian media, he's also doing the same thing about ideas that are front and center on press TV and other radical Khomeinist media that would be fit for Al-Manar, Hezbollah's television station. So bottom line, though, is... This is not just Alex Jones and his millions of followers that are saying that Sajid Javid is a spy, an Islamist in disguise. He's part of the takeover of the West. It's nonsense. Look at his voting record. Conservative, Thatcherite, conservative. Now, the other question is, it would be bizarre for him to be an Islamist He's married to a Christian and self-identifies as non-practicing. He said the only faith, this is quoted in a faith journal in the UK, the only faith practiced in our home is Christianity. Now, he's not said that he's left Islam, but he said the only faith practiced in his home is Christianity. That's between him and God. And I will tell you that it's interesting. He's gotten awards from Muslim organizations in Britain in the past. And I do think it's valuable to point out that his political identity is based on how he views the role of government in national security, in economics, healthcare, 
in other positions. He may have differed with Theresa May on some things, and you can look at the politics domestically inside the UK to understand that. But to say that this guy is part of the Islamist takeover actually, I think, proves the ignorance of anyone who has ever studied what Islamists are, what their movements are. This guy has no examples that I could find. Now, I might be proven wrong later, but again, I'm saying this because to me, it has never been about whether they are Muslim or not. Listen, I'm a Muslim. I'm active. I love my faith, and I believe that I can practice my faith more freely here in America than anywhere in the world. I am the first one to tell you that Muslims are the most essential asset in the defeat of political Islam and its theological underpinnings and its theocratic enemies. But if we are going to do that, we have to be able to understand who the Islamists are. We have to be able to understand who the liberal free thinkers are in the Muslim community. So it's not about whether they're Muslim or not. It's never been about that for me. It is about whether they are Islamist, pro-liberty, and anti-Islamist. Those are the three questions I always ask. Are they, are they, so if they're, let's, let's just suppose they're a Muslim. Are they an Islamist? Are they pro-liberty? And are they anti-Islamists? All three are important. Obviously, most of them are mutually exclusive, but I think all three are important. They could not be an Islamist, but they could not be anti-Islamist. And that does matter to me. Because in today's day and age, when we have so few voices for the Muslim community, you see this guy Khaled Beydoun going around the country. He's coming here to Arizona to speak and wrote a book on Islamophobia. He's out of Detroit. Saw him on Book TV on C-SPAN. It's absurd. All he talks about is how we are victims and we're constantly being, you know, uh, woe is us and the narrative of the anti-Muslim bigotry and comparing us to the African-American community. Islam is not a race. It's an idea. And they ignore the Islamist domination of who we are as Muslims and who our mosques are and what the ideas are that exist in our community. I just, I, I don't get it. So, if you look at the literature about what Javid, the new Home Secretary, talks about, and he's going to be, I think, one of the top, what do they say, top four most powerful people in the UK. And I think it's instructive to look at what his what his statements are. He may not have been as pro-Brexit, but he certainly wasn't anti-Brexit. He's embraced, he has said, the, the importance of British identity. And I think if you look at many of the speaking uh, engagements that he's hit, had, uh, he was uh, tipped to join uh, Stephen Crabb in 2016 on a joint leadership ticket for the Tory party. And I think these are examples, whether it's the governor's race in Michigan, that I think there is an Islamist sympathizer that is uh, running. I don't care if he's Muslim or not, but El Sayed concerns me deeply. Here in Arizona, you've got a, a woman running for the Senate, uh, Deidre Aboud, who was a previous Democratic, who is a Democratic candidate now, but who is a previous head of the Council on American-Islamic Relations in Arizona. None of that is on her profile. You have to dig to find it. None of the media want to talk about it, and we'll talk about it as we get closer. And these things are important, not only for politics, obviously, 
but for the issues of how much these are obstacles to reform. When you have major occupants of the airspace of the conversation of what it is to be an American Muslim that are apologists for Islamism, from Michigan to Arizona, across the country, and then you have a real non- or anti-Islamist in Britain who then gets marginalized by radical conspiracy theorists and the far right or whatever you want to call that. We need to have a conversation about how do you tell the difference between Islamist and non-Islamist. So, you know, I, I actually wish, uh, I, and, and this is no denigration of Mr. Javid, but I actually think Yes, he's very valuable in the battle, but we also need folks that embrace Islam as a faith that can then go toe-to-toe with the imams and the clerics about how to exude freedom and liberty out of the Qur'an and marginalize the narrative of theocracy that is their interpretation of the Qur'an, and that's the debate we need to have today. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the Middle East Studies Association and what they've done bizarrely to defend yes to defend isis's documents this is zuri jasser on reform this you're listening to reform this with dr zuri jasser the blaze radio network don't miss the morning blaze with doc uh, are you at seven uh, two uh, where are you uh, i'm a i'm a i'm a one i'm a, I'm a one okay yeah, I'm, a one. I'm at none uh zero you know how many i take a year how many take a year one maybe oh no it's none let me add it up though <laughs> you know how many i've taken in the last decade let me add them up here carry the one the coast i'm gonna need a uh, zero. Oh, you still have zero the morning blaze weekday morning six to nine eastern on the blaze radio network Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to bring to you a story that if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen some of my conversation about in the past few days. But bottom line is, is this is the type of story that should get much more coverage. And believe it or not... It's coming from criticism that is being hailed upon one of the best counterterrorism journalists in America that works for the New York Times. Yes, Zudi Jasser is defending a reporter for the New York Times, even though I've submitted countless writings to them and they've rejected it. I've never heard back from them, even though they push narratives that bother me frequently about the Muslim community, except when they occasionally publish Mustafa Akhil. And when they published the work of Rukmini Kalamachi, one of the counterterrorism ISIS experts and uh, often a, a treasure trove of information about real information about radical ideas, radical groups, and gets to the sources and has an extensive network of information. Well, the story you haven't heard about this week that I think is essential to understanding the pathological foray in which we live in the United States. Yes, America is a democracy. Yes, we have a wonderful battle of ideas that happens every day on every network almost. And yet, the New York Times 
One of the best national security reporters, Rukmini Kalamachi, publishes 16,000 documents that she begins to roll out through podcasts, through reports that she obtained with the work of others like Janan Musa and others who I would ask you to follow them on Twitter. Uh, it's, it's always right after every attack. They're on top of the story with facts long before others actually start guessing what's happening. Well, the Middle East Studies Association, the MESA, an organization that is so compromised, I don't even know how to, def- how to express it clearly. I'm so riled up about this. But the Middle East Studies Association, which is based uh, supposedly out of Tucson, right down the road here, two hours from Phoenix, has long been appropriately criticized by Martin Kramer, by Daniel Pipes, by Michael Rubin, and others as being this not only anti-Israel, anti-Semitic organization, but basically a tool of the Arab Islamist lobby. And now most of their criticism has been about, appropriately about their work promoting the pro-BDS movement, the the boycott and divest uh, uh, anti-Semitic movement that seeks to marginalize the democracy of Israel's economy. But the MESA, to highlight how pathological and how bigoted this organization is, and I have been critical of the MESA, not only on their anti-Israel positions, but also on how promotional they are of the dictatorships in the Middle East. Now, they have supposedly an academic freedom committee that will pick a few prisoners here or there to highlight. But I guarantee you that you need to follow the funding to understand exactly how compromised they are. Well, they came out with a letter this week that they sent to the editorial board of the of the New York Times, and they said, the acquisition and unethical use of documents removed from Iraq by New York Times journalist Rukmini Kalamachi. And they sent it to Dean Bequet, the executive editor of the New York Times, Michael Slackman, the international editor, and to Rukmini. And then they say, we write to you on behalf of the Committee on Academic Freedom of the MESA to express our deep concern regarding the series entitled The ISIS Files, which the New York Times began publishing on April 4, 2018. The 16,000 documents that Ms. Kalamichi relies on were taken out of Iraq by her and her team without permission of the relevant Iraqi authorities. She's used these materials for a series of articles and podcasts in complete disregard of the legal, professional, ethical, and moral issues involved. We call upon your newspaper, which has no right to possess or retain these materials, to immediately return them to the proper Iraqi authorities in their original form. And then she goes on to defend. They go on to defend. This was written by who? By the head of the MESA. And she goes on to say that it was a false permission that she was given by the Iraqi security forces in which they gave her verbal permission. And it's just incredulous what is said about the permission that came with these. And this letter was written by Judith Tucker, the MESA president, and Lori Brand, the chair of the Committee on Academic Freedom. Go back and look at the awards who they've given to, and most of them are again Arabists 
often government apologists in the Middle East, on and on. Now, the fact that they would have the chutzpah, the fact that they would have the, the gall to send a letter defending, defending the suppression of documents about ISIS. And these documents, go and look at the work of the New York Times about this. The exposure of the slavery, the use of Sharia courts, the, the underground funneling of corrupt cash documents and how uh, uh, much of it was sold to and from the Assad regime and, and the, the network of jihadi terror and how women were enslaved and tortured and, and Christians were tortured and other documents that show not only the barbarity but the use of a sophisticated Salafi jihadi ideology. Sophisticated. This is what I think is powerful about the documents is that it shows the sophistication and that these are not just a bunch of street gangs of 15 and 18-year-old kids. These are folks that are militant fascistic ideologues, Salafi jihadis. And now the MESA, based out of Tucson, Arizona, the Middle Eastern Studies Association, seems to think that the Iraqi people would be upset with their documents having been taken. Now, first of all, there's a war going on in Syria. And when ISIS was in northern Iraq, and the Iraqi people had lost that. And these documents are not being confiscated, stolen to be sold, they're being published publicly. Did the MESA say anything about WikiLeaks, about other documents stolen from us? We weren't even at war. This is a, a, a product of war in which journalists wanted to report about the truth happening inside the war. I mean, the the, the the rationale being used to defend the suppression and the revocation of the publication of these 16,000 documents is absurd. This would, then, this would then be the equivalent of saying that the information that was confiscated during World War II to expose what happened during the genocide of the Jewish community and the over 6 million killed, we should have obtained the permission of the Nazi party of Germany at the time. Now they would say, no, they're defending the Iraqi people's rights. The Iraqi government did not give permission. Let's see the Iraqi government file a suppression, by the way, which would never even happen anyway because it doesn't even pass the sniff test because the Shia are dominating the radicals and the press TV folks of Khomeinis and others uh, are not too busy in protecting the fiduciary responsibilities to the ISIS clerics. Either way, if you look on Twitter and social media, most of the free thinkers of Iraq and Syria are, are just insulted and horrified by what's been published by the Middle Eastern Studies Association. And if only these could be pegged as radical Islamists. I really want to understand where Judith Tucker and Lori Brand 
get off thinking that their Committee on Academic Freedom believes that documents that expose the militancy and theocracy of ISIS that were published by the New York Times somehow violated the trust of people who have rights that deserve to be protected. Seriously? The information that came out of there is invaluable to protecting the rights of women abused in Saudi Arabia and Iran, all over the Middle East that that have no voice, in which families across the Middle East, in which misogynistic men torture their wives, in which which mosques that preach homophobia, anti-Semitism, we can begin to understand where those ideas are coming from. How the monies and corruption in the underground network of Salafi jihadi networks in Afghanistan, where we just this week have seen two major bombings, one of journalists in which 15 were killed, I believe in Kabul, and, and others in a mosque that was bombed in Somalia, all of these acts you begin to understand the inner workings in which this trove of documents has now been slowly being released. I think it's a it's a work that needs to be lauded. So I think if anything, we should call for the shuttering of the Middle East MESA, <laughs> the Middle East Studies Association, it should be shuttered based on its foreign advocacy for enemies of the United States. Or at least it should be labeled the Foreign Agents Registration Act as a lobbying organization. We should expose its funding arms and expose the fact that they are compromised, even beyond compromised, as Michael Rubin has just written about in the AEI from just last summer. He talks about the hypocrisy of the MESA. And it's so obvious to anyone who looks at it, not only their their bizarre focus on anti-Israel issues, but they even went on to talk about the fact that they have actually defended, on the one hand, they didn't want, they said it was a Muslim ban, and Rubin points out that One of the countries that President Trump's administration was trying to prevent was people coming in from Iran. And the Alevi Foundation was a foundation that provided funding that was shut down, half a billion dollars shut down and seized by the U.S. government and now has been reappropriated to families of 9-11 victims. And the MESA had been one of the beneficiaries of the Alevi Foundation before it was shut down because of its complicity and hypocrisy with regards to Middle Eastern theocrats and dictatorships. What better sign do you want of hypocrisy with the enemy that the Middle East Studies Association has than that type of activism? I never thought we would talk about the day when the release of documents exposing ISIS ideology is defended by a committee on academic freedom by an organization out of Tucson, Arizona called the Middle East Studies Association. There's nothing more Orwellian. 
As always, thanks for listening on Reform This, your faithful American Muslim correspondent. I'll be back next week. Great to be great to be with you, and God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.